This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Hello and welcome to the Raptors Republic weekly podcast. This one breaking down what happened at the draft, how we feel about it, and what it might mean for the future. Guest today, a very special one, uh, his third time on since the draft cycle started. If you can get the best, you get them. There will be a, a diverse set of voices talking about a lot of the Raptors moves. But P.D. Webb, Director of Research and Development with Cerebro and writer on Patreon. And a lot of people love it. Let's watch film on YouTube. You can find that at PD Web. Just type that in PD space Web. Mr. Web, how are you doing today, man? Um, I'm doing really well. Um, you know, this is you know the, the calm before the storm. That is the 2022 draft cycle. Um, you know, I, I give myself a couple of days uh, where you just kind of reflect, take it easy, do a couple podcasts, think about the the draft that happened, kind of think about mistakes you made or trying to understand what teams did and, and their thought process because that's always big scouting the next cycle. Um, but yeah, uh, this is one of my calmest times of the year, but uh, thank you so much for having me. And I'm excited to talk about um, one of the most influential picks in the draft and also uh, two interesting second round picks as well. Uh, this is, this is a fun one. Mm-hmm. Paolo Banchero, is he your guy right now? Uh, I don't have a number one yet. I've bounced between a couple of different guys. Um, I have long been a AJ Griffin number one person, um, but I also haven't seen him play basketball in a competitive setting in almost two years. So that's a difficult one to keep number one. So I, right now I, I similar to last year where I kind of had like Cade and then just like a, an osmosis of question marks around Evan Mobley. I kind of have a, a Banchero roughly one, but the same, like if AJ Griffin looks approximately on the same development track, like that's probably my number one, but we'll see them play for the same team next year. Proving ground. Okay, so Blake Murphy, mutual friend of ours, it's uh, shortly after the lottery, The Athletic did a mock draft, and he chose Scotty Barnes at four, and he cited his reasoning as, well, I wanted to produce it as a thought experiment and see what happens if Scotty goes four. Everybody's mocking one, two, three, four with Cade, Green, Mobley, and Suggs. So he popped Barnes in there. As it turns out, after everybody gave him a bunch of crap and was like, this is unrealistic. Why would you do this? You know, you've ruined my life. Scotty Barnes goes four. Just cliff notes. What are your thoughts on Barnes at four? I think it's a really interesting process. Um, I don't, I think that there was an initial reaction that like this was a reach or that this was an unconventional choice. Um, I think that that also comes from the, like, I would say misinterpretation of Jalen Suggs as like a primary um, I've always interpreted him as a as a like a connecting piece, you know, um, sort of like a 
not entirely, you know, different, but in the same idea of Tyrese Albert, where he, like he can struggle to get to his spots on his own. He's best playing within both uh, playing within a system that creates a certain amount of angles and looks for him, and playing next to another creator. Um, if you inter- if you see him as that, like he's not necessarily a guarantee it for. Where if you see him as like hand him the ball and let him make a trillion decisions a game guy, you naturally are going to want to put it before. I think that the common consensus was the latter, but I mean I'm very much in the former camp of like you need to have a primary ball handler next to him at all times. This pick was so interesting because, like, Toronto is a very tight-lipped organization, or like even worse than tight-lipped. They don't say nothing, but the things that they say kind of come with the Cheshire grin. Um, so there'll be some small leaks, but they feel very controlled. Um, and you're left to sort of figure out, like, do I know that because it's true, or do I know that because they think that I think it's true? So they think that if they tell me the lies, I'll believe that it's true. And you're like, this is too, this is too much. And that's the worst place to be in. That's it. That's obviously how a lot of good organizations operate is just like sometimes telling you the truth and then you have to you do you overthink it um so when they went with scotty i mean my first concern was like is pascal on this team next year is kyle lowry on this team next year because i think that the fit isn't necessarily a problem i don't even i don't even think that the developmental fit like thinking about him for the first three years is necessarily a problem but it is important when you're thinking about like what exactly is it that you want him to do if you also have two versatile forwards playing next to him most of the time if it's one and it's OG, that's you know pretty easy um, to to understand. OG will have much more of a creation role. Scotty will be more of a connector. Um, but if he's the third, it's not that it's hard. It's just that you probably want him to be more of a connector, do more flashing and and, and processing in small doses. Um, don't really think there's like an overlap in terms of of like usages. I mean, Scotty's jumper is um, going to be difficult or going to have be have like some difficulty translating. But you know, I, I think that using him as a, a post flashes guy or you know running some second side snow pick and roll and you can do a whole bunch of really fun stuff but not knowing who's going to be on this team does make the initial projection and the initial role sort of hard to think about because so much seems to be in flux other than uh og and Obi and mm-hmm. it's a it's a messy team construction right now especially as you say with so much in flux um short plug Later on in the week, Henry Ward will be coming on to discuss team building, you know, kind of with what the Raptors might be going for. So look I also forward assume to that. It's going to be David, I assume there's also going to be some David Johnson talk. There will be David Johnson talk, yes, for sure. Uh, interesting player. But, okay, let's get to the standout aspects of Scotty's game. He's the number four pick, and selecting that high, there should be several standouts. As you said with Jalen Suggs, connector more than primary People who listened to the definitive Jalen Suggs podcast I did with Jackson Frank, you would have got that from us as well. Scotty Barnes, though, goes number four. What are the major points that you of emphasis in his game that make him shoot up a draft board with so much momentum late and land on a in an organization that values those kinds of things? I mean, I think you start with approach first. Um, Scotty has always been a extremely high energy. Um, high-intensity, high-communication player. Um, he's a guy who needs to make noise, needs to clap, needs to you know jump up and down, needs to touch the rim. Like Those are the things that get him going. Um, and that's um, – for a team that just played a year in Tampa, a guy who like so visibly loves basketball like can be a nice change of face. Like at the end of the day, this is a job, but somebody who just like truly loves it and like enjoys nothing more than throwing down a dunk and then clapping in someone's face for about five seconds. Um, 
that can bring a lot of joy to a team and, and you'll, you know, as, as the NBA has loosened its bench celebration restrictions, um, you can see how much that like really gets people going to, to celebrate the achievement of others. Um, and that's not like, you know, fluffy stuff. It's like on defense, you, if you sit close or, you know, you're, you sit at a summer league game, you can hear him from like row 50. He's just shouting like rotation, drop, drop. Like you hear everything he has to say on defense. And for a rookie, that's a true standout because like most rookies know what they're doing on defense, but they can't communicate multiple positions at once. Um, part of that is, you know, the way he's wired. Uh, other parts of that are his experiences with Team USA in the youth sector and also going to Montford. Um, and then finally he finished it. Florida State, which is a place known for really nailing down the specifics of, of defensive uh, responsibility. Patrick Williams, who went number four to the Bulls last year, um, went to went to Florida State for that exact reason that he wanted to to establish, you know, his his communication, his rotation, um, and and like the minutia of defense as a as a fundamental part of his game. And he knew at other places he could shoot, but he wanted to get that down. Scotty's kind of like the the perfect embodiment of a lot of those ideas, um, and I think that. If you just showed him to a, to like people and you ask like what he's good at, you'd just be like vibes. Like the vibes are awesome, and like that's not nothing. Like he, you can tell how much he enjoys defense, how much he enjoys communication, and like that energy to to play hard. Basically, every possession he's on the floor is a viable ability. Okay, and so let's discuss the playmaking then. You can see a lot of broken play playmaking. You can see a lot of transition playmaking, and just. He makes good reads off the bounce, mm-hmm. especially for his position. Came off the bench, Florida State. A lot of possessions as a primary for that style of basketball. What do you make of his playmaking so far? Because, you know, with fans, you can always get the, well, he's Magic Johnson because he's big and he passes the ball. Or you could get, you know, oh, we don't have a guy who can even dribble. Like, where? what do you find the ranges for him there? I would say that he processes the game extremely well. Um, he's always been a guy who recognizes advantages and, and has a very good schematic understanding of what the defense is trying to take away. So he often makes the most dangerous pass in a particular situation. Um, I think that Toronto, like I, I have long been a believer in OG as a star and as a primary creator, like a person who can create a primary load of shots. So I think that like, as long as you're playing against a tilted defense, like Scotty's reads really will stand out because his handle is a struggle um, from a primary aspect. It's, it's fine, especially in transition. He, gets up to full speed. He has long strides. Um, but in the half court where his athleticism and his uh, handle, like can, those I mean, areas of his game, they're just like not good, um, are really important uh, to like sculpt so that the weaknesses don't come through so much. Um, I, I think that he can run pick and roll. You just have to divide, like every pick and roll should be sculpted. It should never just be like one, four flat. Um, it, it should be on a Nick screen on, you know, on, on a, on a snug pick and roll coming off a secondary action flow into something because he sets up screens. Well, he has an understanding of the angles. He has an understanding of the defense, but his ability to create advantage on his own is limited by his athleticism and his handle intersection right now in transition. It's own different thing, but in the half court, it, it is going to be something that needs to be schemed for specifically. You, uh, what you said about OG, we're probably going to steal time from Champagne as far as the conversation at the end of this podcast. I want to ask you, more about that, but okay. Handle Jalen Suggs very within himself. You know, it speaks to being able to manipulate and to, you know, create larger advantages off the bounce. What do you make of Scotty Barnes handle, how it might develop and where it's at currently? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's a flexibility thing mostly. I mean, he has really long arms, which is a gift and a curse as a handle. It's like if you have really, really long arms, it just takes so long from you know the ball to get to one for fully. Like if you if you go out of a hang dribble and all the way out, like that ball is you know five feet away from your from your center of gravity, then you have to go across and so it gets all the way over to the other hand. But it is a longer process. It's often like why big guys get ripped a lot is because there's so much distance from the ball bouncing to the floor. It gives a lot of time for your small guards to get underneath and get it before it it bounces back up to your hand. Um, flexibility is going to be a huge concern. He doesn't have a lot of wiggle. Um, oftentimes he just creates a smaller advantage and then outstrengths his way to the rim. Um, in the NBA, it's going to be less feasible. Um, it's also in the NBA, teams are going to be able to force him to shoot more. Um, he took steps, steps in, in the right direction in terms of like attempts. Um, I think that he sort of had negative development on his jumper since I like since his sophomore year of high school where he was taking shots off the dribble. Um, I, th- I think that there's the flexibility, the, um, the energy transfer that you see in his handle is also present in his jumper, which looks stiff. Like it just doesn't look like a dude who's comfortable shooting. Um, he looks like a dude who's thinking about shooting a basketball um, and trying to sort of like memorize the steps um, as a bad dancer. It looks like a, somebody who's trying to think of, you know, like, okay, so it's, it's up, it's left, then it's right. There's a side step. Wait, no, no, it's up, then it's right. Then it's up. That's what it feels like him shooting. It, when he's most, when he shoots best, it, it looks so much different. It looks like a confident dancer. But that rigidity to me speaks to his uh, readjustment of his shooting as the year as, uh, over the years and, and trying to figure out you know what's most comfortable for him. If you were scheming to, not that he's going to call for a lot of that early on in his career, but if you're scheming to mitigate his strengths. What would you be trying to throw at him? Uh, I would just go under every screen. Um, I would go under every screen and then force him to throw like weak side skips. It's not something that he can't do. It's just that like when you say like, okay, you're not getting any pass, but that pass, it allows pre-rotation to the corner. So it allows everybody to know this is what's happening next. Um, I mean, he's a guy who I would like to see volume as a big deal. Um, Volume over percentages. Like I'm fine if he shoots 28% from three a game. His rookie year, that, that would not be a concern for me. If it's on a one attempt a game, like there's a problem. If it's on three and a half or four, we're in a good place because at least he's taking, he's recognizing open shots. He perceives them as good shots for him. He's a good to great guy. This this happens pretty commonly for guys who like are, are were raised in uh, very winning situations where they have a little bit of what we in the scouting community call academy brain, where they do what's best for the team at all times. And if you're a bad shooter, you shooting is bad for the team. And so they pass up open shots, which would be a great shot for anybody else, but they, you know, have some, have some worries. And I would like him to just turn those worries out and get shots up. Obviously there's going to be adjustments as he gets into the NBA. Um, it's not in a particularly great place right now. Like I'm not going to lie to you. The flexibility is going to be important, but more than anything, it is the rhythm. The release looks fine. It's, it's the middle part of the jumper that, that I would say is an issue. Um, I think that that's, that's, Probably, like, I mean, I can go deeper into the jumper um, as we go. I don't think he's super comfortable mm-hmm. shooting off the bounce consistently. Like, he'll take a couple here and there, but it's not – the process is, is very dependent on how he how he felt on a day-to-day basis. Um, footwork's okay, not phenomenal. Um, I think a lot of this has to go with, like, he can't get shots off that quickly, um, both because of his – because of his handle, because of uh, – because of like the way that the rhythm of his jumper is, but also because like his, his athletic system is particularly non-reactive. Um, so like he, he struggles to like hop 
three times quickly in a row. It takes him a moment to load each time. And so, like, you know, if he's doing a hang dribble to a sidestep, the hang, a little bit of a gather delay, sidestep, gather delay, and then shot, gather delay. So that that power generation, he 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 can generate a lot of power, but at times it can take him too long to do so. And since, you know, basketball is a game of timing windows, if you're a little too late, then, like, you know, there's a dude with a seven foot seven wingspan who's just mm-hmm. flown in and, and gotten a fingertip to it, or even worse, scared you out of taking that shot. So now you're closely covered, you pump faked him, like the, everybody on defense knows what's happening. Okay, uh, two questions. Who is the best player with Academy brain in the NBA? And then two, Scotty Barnes, you talked about how you go under and then you use pre rotation to mitigate the advantage of the pass he's making. How does he pass against pre-rotation? Does he outfox the defense when stuff like that happens? So those two cues. Okay. Um, the best player with Academy brain. I mean, like at times it's probably Patty Mills. Like, like there, the thing is, is that you can grow out of Academy brain. Like we've seen this with guys who um, like some guys do, some guys don't, some guys just find a role that is much more clear for them. Like it's not, it's not a flat thing of like, I'll do what's best for the team. It's like for some guys, it's, it comes to shooting. Other guys, it comes from like, they struggle to not do more than shoot. Like it Academy brain affects different players differently. Um, so for some guys, like they can minimize their Academy brain by going to a role. that's a little more comfortable for them. This is so you'll find this in like second or third draft guys where they bounce around the league a little bit and suddenly they're in a spot that looks perfect for them. Um, Danny Green, probably a good case for this. Um, he, he bounced around a little more than the, you know, a couple teams, but we find something like that. And then you have guys who like overcome it. Um, I think like Killian is going through this right now. Frank Milikina is going through this right now. Uh, it's not that this just a, it affects French players or, or overseas players. You'll see this with, with Americans. And we have quite a few Americans in this specific class that, that have Academy brand. Um, Springer being another one who also went to a, I mean, usually it's just like, did you play for a really good high school? Did they, you know, systematize reads? Are you always hunting for advantage? Um, and that leads to guys who, if you can't shoot, can struggle to, to deal with the cognitive dissonance of like, I have an open shot, but I am shooting it. Okay. And as far as Scotty Barnes and uh, the uh, rotation. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that he, he gets it, but he can like, getting to a situation where you have to outfox the defense on the same read over and over again is a failure unto itself. Mm. Like you're playing a game with you're, you're playing a a casino game at that point where like they already have the advantage. They know what's happening and they can always just throw more defenders and more looks. They have more options than you probably have counters because like, even if they, you know, start pre-Xing out or, you know, they stunt and recover or, you know, they sometimes it was like, won't send anybody to the corner to see what you do. Um, to, to force it and, and force a long rotation. But like at the end of the day, you're, you keep going back to that read instead of doing the thing that actually breaks the coverage, which is like shooting through it mm-hmm. or, or, you know, re or rescreening or like finding a way to get two in the paint. The, the solution isn't with the pass necessarily. Sometimes like it can be with the pass as an outcome, but you have to change your approach to make a defense change its approach. If that makes sense. Okay, and then before we get to defense, two feet in the paint, downhill momentum, what is the, you know, finishing craft, foul drawing craft, you know, passing in the interior? Like, does he have the wraparound? Does he have the dump off? All this kind of stuff. Could he throw a lob on the short roll? Yeah, uh, I, th- I feel like that's probably his best style of passing. Are these like little, like, because he has really long arms, he can throw some really weird angles. So like his dump off is really low. Um, 
for a dude who's like six, seven, six, eight. Um, I think it, the thing that's going to be difficult is that like, he does not have vertical pop and uh, he's one of the guys who I think who tanked his standing reach to get a higher vertical number at the combine. So like he, I think he, he tested like 38, 37, which like he's probably closer to like 34, 33. And on his film, you can see that he really struggles to generate power quickly. So, like, if you think about, like, the, the, the best dude in the world, this is Marvin Bagley. Like, Marvin Bagley's feet touch the ground, and his second jump is both lightning quick and gets as high as his first jump. And Scotty doesn't have that ability. He needs a lot of time to load, and he can't get as high the second time. Or, you know, if it's off a drop step, then he can't get as high the first time because it's the same, you know, uh, power coordination. It's just not, you know, involving a, a second jump. But... I think he has some finishing craft. He's not like a, a a full extension guy. The problem is that he doesn't have a bunch of finishing variety because he can't go over the top. Um, if you see, like, if you watch his dunk highlight reel, you'll notice it's a lot of length dunks. And sometimes he does a length dunk and then, like, grabs and, and rips the rim so it looks a lot, like, tougher than it is. Um, I think that uh, attaching flexibility and tax, uh, attaching extra um, – like quick twitch athleticism is going to be really important for his finishing because it does limit his use as a five and it does limit his use as a flasher because he does, he will need extra craft. He will need weird finishing angles. He will need, need, you know, multiple finishing styles because he can't just like go up and get it. Do you have a reference point for a player that's done that in the past? Hmm. Uh, in regards to just like adding a lot of weird stuff. Yeah, really refining the quick twitch stuff and kind of putting it into their game. Um, I mean, like if I had to say, like I think there's two different things there. Like if it's for the just adding weirdness, like Boris Diaw is, is an example. Like Boris started his you know his basketball life as a point guard, then he was super athletic, and then he um, became a wine lover, and then he became super effective. Like it's it's a hilarious journey, but like. You could like he has every finish. He's super strong. He, he could jump forty on you know if you if you put him up on the rack. But you didn't see that in games because he found so much of of his effectiveness not from using his particular like his strangely awesome athleticism, but from you know finding unique angles from guys that have improved their bounce. I feel like I feel like Jakob Bartle did, uh, especially later in his career. Um, that's a that's a much more difficult list of guys um it feels like it feels like you generally get marginally better i don't think there's a, like especially for guys that have been as um a lot of guys who do get better come from sort of like the pascal life track where it's like you know i didn't play basketball my entire life i you know got i was in a, a low d1 program i was off a national team radar like scotty's been on the national team radar since he was like 14 years old like he's gotten the best training in the world basically for the past like five or six years. So the idea that like he's going to be exposed to some new, some new training techniques is kind of difficult for me. I don't want to say his body is maxed out, but like those things have definitely been explored. Um, and there might not be as much, like there's going to be quite a bit of uh, athletic uh, upside just, you know, because of his frame. But the idea that there's like this, you know, the, the priors are about as bona fide as they could possibly be just from a athletic testing and, and, and performance aspect. Excellent. Uh, let's do quick jump shot doctor for Scotty Barnes. And I guess we'll start with catch and shoot stuff. Uh, a lack of dip, um, rigidity, something you talked mm-hmm. about. But uh, do you see a blueprint for improvement? And it doesn't have to be rapid, incredible improvement, but just improvement. Yeah, I mean, I think it starts with the feet. Um, 
I don't love his rhythm. Um, I don't think he has to be a hop guy. I don't think it would hurt. Um, sometimes it feels like his rhythm alters how much legs are in his jumper. He has a tendency of overarming. I mean, if you just sort of divide the body in half, ideally, you want it to kind of be 50 50. Um, he's probably going to be a guy who moves towards a 1.5 jumper. Um, he, he was a definite, he's been a two motion guy up until college. And I feel like he started to smooth it out, but it's going to be a multi-year process. Um, you know, most guys, it requires a, a car, like a calendar year of smoothing from two to 1.5 or two to one. Um, like on a, that's a good outcome. But I'd say like two years is, is pretty normal to get to add in results. Um, I would say stabilizing feet. Um, I don't, I don't really have an opinion on no dip versus dip. I generally like guys who dip um, just because, especially if you're a one, two guy, you just need something that establishes rhythm, rhythm, rhythm and flexibility are the general biggest concerns with Scotty. Um, the release itself looks okay. I feel like it's pretty consistent looking some hand placement issues, but like these are minor things like hand placement issues generally don't turn you from like a 25% shooter to a 40% shooter. It's usually there's underlying things like hand eye coordination for perception that are, you know, uh, the ability to, to create rhythm. Like those things are the things that cause you to miss jumpers. It's not like, Oh, your thumb's in the way. For the most part, if, if that, if that was just the issue, somebody would have said it and it would have been fixed. Okay. So to put a pin in the offense for a fan who's watching the game, what we're most likely going to see him have the most success with, it sounds like is a second side pick and roll where he can get downhill, maybe flash passing chops, short rolling and transition. Do you think that's a fair summary of what we might expect to see? Yeah. I mean, I think that you might have some uh, with like high pick and roll, but it wouldn't be like, it's not going, he's not a lob catcher right now. It would be like to get him to, it would get him to clear out into a second side pick and roll. So like he'd run the he'd run the pick and roll, they'd clear him out, and then his man would relocate a little bit, then that can flow into. Like I think that I think that his his frame is obviously ideal for setting screens. Like he's a huge person. But the idea of him as a lob catcher is like sort of not realistic. Like he's not PJ Washington who can like really get up or anything like that. That's still going to be a while away. And I think that like there are some uh misunderstandings of how his athleticism works, um, which I'm sure we'll talk about with his defense. I would, I would like to combine he and Daniel Gafford because Gafford has a lot of pop to me, like that yes. upwards pop. Yeah. That would be, that would be really fun if you could do that. Okay. Uh, let's do defense. I want to bring up because I want to talk about one through five. And is that a real thing? Because Raptors fans if you go into Twitter replies about defending one through five, they will probably assert that OG is the best at it in the league, but even he can only guard certain aspects of the center's game. And he had really good success doing so against Daniel Tice, who is extremely small for the center position. And, you know, he had great games against Nikola Jokic, but that's being a hawk above the break where they're trying to, you know, establish a possession and, He's, he's stealing point to wing or wing to point passes, but down on the block, you know, Jokic was getting everything he wanted. So what is your thoughts on one through five? Do players often get there? And if so, does Scotty fit that? Um, yeah, I'd say nobody's that. Um, one through five is, uh, is a fun idea. Um, because like, 
every position has its own. Like, is one through five mean that you are comfortable switching onto like De'Aaron Fox? Does it mm-hmm. like right? And also, you can take post touches where you win against Joel Embiid. Um, the player that you're describing appears to be uh, God. Like that, just like, just, that dude doesn't exist. Like prime yeah. brawn is essentially like and prime brawn giving a hundred percent could probably do, do those things for like 10 positions. Um, so like switching one through, like being a one through five guy is, I think uh, needs to be clarified on what people mean, because like if what you mean is that there are certain matchups where you will guard, you are capable of guarding ones. Like there, you know, if you play a team with a bigger body point guard, like if you play, you know, wherever Kyle Lowry signs it, you know, I think we, it's a foregone conclusion. He's, he's kind of gone. Say he signs with the Mavs. If you're playing the Mavs, like, could you switch on to Kyle Lowry? Probably. Does that make you one through five? No, because Kyle Lowry is, you know, slower than the average one. You know, he's a, he's a little bit older. Yes, there's obviously challenges with him getting by you because his um, unique lower body strength and, uh, you know, uh, shooting gravity. Um, but is that standard? And then for fives, like if you guard the smallest five, does that mean you can guard fives? Um, I think that what people generally mean when they say guard one through five is like that a player has positional versatility and could plug into different places. Like they have some point of attack stuff. They have like some seven seconds stuff. are left on the shot yeah. clock and you switch out and like yeah. it's not going to be a disaster. Yeah, I think like switch everything guys is like really interesting. because It's like, oh yeah, this guy could, you know, he can switch everything. I'm like, on who? Like switch everything yeah. on everybody because like that's not realistic. Like there's no five you feel comfortable with on an island against Zach Levine. That's just not a that's not a dude. Like even Draymond, you're like this is not ideal. We have failed in this position if this is happening. Similarly, there's no wing that you like. Joel Embiid gets a toast post touch on them, and you're like, yeah, we're great. Don't send help. So I think that clarifying scheme, clarifying, um, you know what what it is that needs to happen. Um, so like, you know, like I think Scotty specifically is interesting. Cause like, uh, I don't think Scotty is a front side wing rim protector that eliminates your ability to play five in many lineups, unless you're playing with a four who's a great rim protector. But that means that like, you're not really playing the five. You kind of have a 4.5 and a four with, but the four is such a good weak side rim protector that it, you know, these, these ideas of playing one through five, um, are interesting but they exist in a contextual requirement. You know? Okay, so my number one question, or sorry, I might have cut you off there. No, no, I was just, uh, you're good. Okay, so my number one question is, this is something Polar talked about um, at Skyfall for those who want to look up biomechanics on Twitter. But something he talked about was how what we see with Scotty picking you know, college guards up it might not translate to the NBA at the same level because of his style of athleticism, because of mm-hmm. the, the advantageous parts of his athleticism and the parts that haven't come along as much. Uh, you alluded to it with front, ride, front side rim protection. Do you think that it's viable at all for him to kind of emulate the defensive profile that he had at Florida State in the NBA? And if not the whole thing, what aspects do you expect him to, su- to succeed at in the NBA. So like Scotty's point of attack style, like doesn't seem like it'll transfer to me a ton against guards because like what he did is he just like, he overwhelmed them. He found the ball handler that had like the shoddiest handle or was like the least comfortable. He's crowded them. And like, 
in the NBA, players get used to being defended by guys with these monster wingspans who can cover ground and, you know, get their hands on anything. And in college, like, you just don't see that that often. Even in the ACC, there's just not a bunch of dudes who are 6'8 who will slide with you. You get locked in the knees. Yeah. Um, So, like, his – he very much, like, hunts weakness in guards. And, like, that's just not – there's not NBA – there's not that many NBA players who fit that mold. So, I think that some of his switching onto guards is not – like, will work, but it's going to work. It's, like, second units and specific ones where, you know, maybe a guard is – like, struggles with passing reads and he's able to overwhelm them and they don't see even, like, the cursory ones. That's feasible, but the idea of, like, you're good if, you know, there's a 1-4 pick and roll and um, and Shea Gildas-Alexander is coming off of it, like, that's you're in a bad spot. That's not going to work out because, like, if you crowd Shea's handle, he, go, he walks by you. Um, so I think that, like, Scotty does have good horizontal athleticism. He moves his feet well. Uh, he, he covers distance. He can change direction pretty good. He has, you know, he has the arms to cover up mistakes um, in, in any technique that he has. But I think that he's going to have to relearn what's possible because his tendency is to get aggressive. And in the NBA, if you're aggressive with the wrong guys, they cook you. Um, because like that, that finding weaknesses isn't going to happen. I don't mean this to say like he's a, like he is a, like lesser prospect because of it. It's just that his tendencies have to alter to be more of a mirror guy. Um, you know, I think Kawhi had this issue at San Diego state where he just like wanted, he wanted drew holiday had this issue, but like they just hunted people's handle. The minute that you exposed it, they ripped it from you. And in the NBA, that's just not like with Kawhi, you know, he, you, things like, you know, uh, like Macklemore will happen where you find a guy with a weak handle and you uh, rip him, you know, two times in a row real bad. But for the most part, Dudes, are, dudes handles are, are, are tough line. So him being more of a mirror guy, yeah, it's going to take some some tendency adjustment, but like that's extremely valuable. You don't have to rip guys every time down. That's just not how the NBA works. Um, that being said, like if he can't overwhelm people, you probably don't want him on ones. You probably want him to take two through like the heavier fours. You probably don't want him on like the super skinny fours um, because they can uh, shift him out of the way. Excellent. Okay. And so if we're looking for what he's going to succeed at, particularly in the framework of the Raptors defense, Pascal Siakam is a guy who made his name and he, he became much better at front right front side rim protection than I think a lot of people might've expected, but he made his name on court coverage. What do you think of Scotty Barnes projection as a court coverage defender? I think that that's probably his best role. Um, because also as a court coverage guy, like he's an extraordinary communicator and the better communicator, somebody has the farther back you want them on the defense. Like this is why so many young bigs struggle with adjustments to the league is the like in, in the league, the five is the communicator. And so your job isn't just to talk through what's happening point of attack. It's to have, it's to talk through every action on the floor simultaneously and cover your dude who, if you miss by a half step, a lob goes up and you get dumped on. That's a really difficult <laughs> assignment. And if you put him on the weak side corner and you have him next to a rim protector, then he can call out everything um, and, and give you two you know, high-level communicators on the floor at the same time. Um, he's going to have some navigation issues um, if teams target him to you know, get skinny through screens. Like he'll, he'll certainly energy his way through it. But he's not, you know, he's not Macau where he's like capable. He's not Macau or Matisse or anything where like off-ball they're in heaven. It's more that he 
he has good foot placement. He understands where he has to be, but he is, he does have some circumstances where he uh, just doesn't have the frame for moving in multiple directions, you know, successively. Um, if, if like, if you play Boston, like you don't want him on Tatum because they'll just put him through screen, you know, the screen maze and he's going to have some issues navigating it. Okay. And with all those things considered, is there an outcome 50, 75, 85 that you're expecting for his defense? Just, and it's, I know it's tough to put like a percentile outcome into defense since there's not really any defensive awards outside of, you know, all defense and defensive player of the year. But is there something you think he can punch up at? I mean, it, it really depends on how. It really depends on how he handles, um, like his improvement. If he gets more flexible, then like did we get a different archetype of guys he can handle. Um, if he gets like too above average, like, if he gets too average pop, right now I would say he's like somewhere between far below and below average for for a strong settlement protector. Um, then you know you can have him be uh be the like the you know the, the front side protector um i think that i have very little doubt that scotty will be a very good defender it's just targeting what he does well because he does have specific limitations just like literally everybody does like Kawhi struggles with super shifty dudes like I, that's probably the best defender of my generation okay hmm Okay, and then so let's discuss just as far as philosophy. Bobby Webster, when he was talking about the draft pick, he talked about having a bunch of guys who are of a similar size and build to OG and Siakam. Like, have five of those guys out on the floor at once. What do you think of that? Just that in itself and having a, you know, a GM say that. I mean, it's, it's certainly a fun concept, but like one of the important things is different movement styles. OG moves kind of similar to, to Scotty. Like Scotty uh, isn't as rangy in terms of movement. Like he's, you know, his, his steps are a little bit shorter. He, he likes to, to, you know, hop up and down more. Or like OG, just all long strides. Like it, it sort of feels like everything's in that like 1950s animation style where the legs go on forever. Um, and Siakam, you know, uh, I've always said like moves around like he's covered in petroleum jelly. Um, like, I think that you can have guys who are similar size and a similar build, but they all can't move the same because then they have all the same defensive utility. So having guys who are all six, nine, but one of them, you know, is, is really like kind of jitterbuggy. I know it's difficult to imagine a six, nine jitterbug, but you know, the sort of so one guy that's, that's a little bit on like the lankier stridey side, one that's a little bit more on the football player build that all makes like, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, they also have different, they also have different skills. Like, <laughs> I mean, if you have zero advantage creators and five, six, nine dudes, it's just going to be ball reversals until somebody jacks up a 17-footer. Um, we've seen teams try to do that, obviously at lower talent levels. And, like, it struggles because one of them doesn't have the, the primary creator uh, moveset and necessities. Um, I think as a team-building philosophy, it makes a lot of sense. I also think it explains some of the later picks um, and one of the specific gripes that I have about, um, about one of the second-round picks. Um, but the idea that, like, if you, you can definitely build a very good defense out of this and the offense, as long as they're good processors, um, and at least, you know, three of them are good shooters, will certainly hold its own weight as well. 
and just for the listener, this will be expanded upon with Henry Ward in a few days. But it is really interesting. But that is that is the point I think that you bring up is ball reversals until you get the contested 17 footer. Who who is breaking down the defense when you look at the Raptors roster and creating that big advantage? And if you're thinking, well, I saw Fred Van Vliet get downhill and create a three-point shot, you know, 380 times last year. Yes, but what was the quality of the three-point shot? How how in tune, you know, we talked about counters to the type of advantage you're creating earlier on with, you know, Elk Fox in the defense. Fred was good at finding the guys forming up. The guys formed up so that the pass was available to be made. But a lot of the time, the ball was just going from the top of the floor to the sideline. And the Raptors need more solid advantage creation than that, typically. But we'll get into that more, I guess, when we talk about the second round guys a little bit. Okay, Scotty Barnes, expected outcomes. Judging from what you know and what you think is the most, I don't know, expedient and easiest things to progress with in the NBA, according to his archetype, is there, what are the outcomes you kind of think that we might see from Scotty Barnes, even if it's the 30%, the 50, the 75, the 90, because if we look at Pascal Siakam, he's probably sitting at a really high percentile of his outcome. Yeah, I would say 90, I would say like 99th percentile. Right. According to what he was drafted at, OG Ananobi is also sitting at a decently high percentile. We'll talk about what that might become at the the back end of the podcast, though. But for Scotty, what do you see and what might you think it'll become? So I said that there's kind of like, I think that there's two pretty, like, let's take the the two like meatiest outcomes. Obviously, there's like a one, you know, there's the the very tail end where it's like either he, you know, completely forgets how to shoot and becomes a negligible offensive player, or he really, really, really learns how to shoot. And, you know, then we're talking about something entirely different. Okay, we've talked about those there either way. I think the lower end outcome for him, which kind of covers like 50% down, is like a very good rotational player who is uh, on defense, who can, you know, bounce between responsibilities well, who's capable of getting in passing lanes, um, who's his best in transition and uh, processes the floor very well, even if he can't create his own advantage. Um, That's a playoff rotation player basically automatically. Um, And if you can build, um, if you can build um, even lineups around him where there's enough shooting and, and enough advantage creation, then it's a, like probably a playoff starter. Like I would say those are like 50% to like 30% outcomes. Uh, let's say 50 to 80%. So like these would be the we'll probably classify as good. I mean, all of these are, I, I think that there's very little chance that Scotty Barnes is not like a meaningful playoff player, but um, I would say a good chance is that he shoots open jumpers. Um, he does all those things and he has the explosiveness and flexibility to navigate screens and protect a player. Um, then you have a player who is extraordinarily valuable in the playoffs, can probably play some five, which like I do not think he could do right now. Um, because like, okay, if, if somebody else is covering your, like if it requires a specific instruction, you kind of can't play that position. You're kind of just like, I don't want to say attempkin center, but like, you're sort of halfway doing a role and somebody else is, is replacing, you know, there's an offset. That's not like it, it, it limits team discretion in a way that like if you could straight up play the five, it would be different. Um, if he could play the five and navigate screens well enough to like guard twos, I don't ever want him on ones. 
unless it's like straight up backup point guards that you just want him to harass for 94 feet just for like funsies. Um, which like, I think you could de- like I, at summer league, I would just have him do that for fun. Um, just to be like, you know, we want you to feel comfortable and that will definitely get his engine revving. Um, but like, yeah, I, I think both of those are uh, meaningful or better players. Um, I don't think that he like will ever become like a star in the traditional sense or like his mixtapes are amazing. Um, but like, if you think about upside in the sense of like, will this player win all-star game MVP? He doesn't necessarily have any, but if you think of upside of like, will this player help us win playoff games, like team upside, will this player like make us proud to wear the, wear the jerseys and, and as fans, he has a ton. And like, there are bad players who fit that first category. Like they're like, your teams are still bad. The guy averages 36 points a game. It's like, you probably aren't having fun. Like you, you remember that playoff run? Would you call that fun? It seems like it was a lot of fun. Uh, Scotty is sort of a vision of a, of a very winning player, which like seems like faint praise because like a lot of people want the fun guy. Um, and sometimes they coexist, but like Kawhi wasn't necessarily a fun basketball player. <laughs> he just did a lot of winning stuff and just was a fun guy. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think Scotty exists in that same vein. It's just like with more clapping and vibes and, and enjoying uh, <laughs> outwardly. Okay. There's one thing I do want to ask about because I know some of the listeners are going to be disaffected by you saying you don't want Scotty on a one ever because Raptors fans have seen Pascal Siakam take John Wall as a primary in a playoff series. They've seen Pascal Siakam as the primary for Russell Westbrook in regular season games against the Westbrook and George Thunder. What, what, what is the difference mainly between Scotty and Pascal that you could get away with Pascal playing defense in those roles and why you don't think Scotty can? Uh, reactive movement skills. Also, like, like Pascal's a mirror um, who, like, has a really good reactive athleticism. Like, Pascal can, you know, shift his feet three or four times and still get a good contest on people. And still, like, he can get beat and, and recover. And Scotty's just not that kind of like he's not that style of athlete. I don't want to say kind because like athleticism people are, are hear different things. So I'm trying to be really specific with the words, but like mm-hmm. the idea is that like styles of athleticism, the style that Scotty moves is not perfect for the hyper athletic ones. Like Ja Morant is like hard no. Never mm-hmm. ever would I want him on Jaw because Jaw moves in a way that Scotty just like kind of can't. Whereas like more twos that try to that are more less are less like uh jitterbuggy and more smooth would be good like demar yeah DeMar is oh, not yeah. a jitterbug yeah i mean like even beal i think he could do oh he i think he would be much better on like a beal style i think beal might be a touch on the outside fringe but like in the in the archetype of beal where it's like beal wins more with smooth than with like bap bap and gone and so like at a, at a lower level of that i feel like you would be with Scotty, but like you know, Jaw would be like a uh, uh, ask for a different assignment kind of situation. Okay, I, I want to. I think you would want to guard Jaw. I think uh, to be honest, arguing this with Scotty in an, I cannot imagine being the person who's like, "Hey, you can't guard him." But that, yeah. that seems like a terrible <laughs> yeah. job. You have to have you have to find the most charismatic guy on staff to convince him that actually this other job is more important because he's going to be like, "No, I want to guard him. I want to put him in on. Uh, give me him on an island." You're like, "No, Scotty, Scotty, Scotty. Hey, hey, this this off ball role is so much more important. Like, think about it. Like, that's the mainstream movie. Like, I'm over here. Like, this is the art house role. You know, like this is the one people are like, you're going to get awards. He's like, no, but I want the, I want the you know, 
yeah, yeah. Uh, don't envy the person who has to tell him that. Yeah. I, I did, I did want to dig in a little bit because Raptors fans, from what I'm seeing, from what I'm hearing, have been sold on the one through five and have seen the clips of him eating up college point guards. So they might be disaffected hearing that you don't want him guarding the one. So I just wanted you to make like a very specific case. And I'm personally, I'm very happy with that case, but okay. uh, Let's do some Twitter questions according to, well, regarding Scotty Barnes, if that works with you. Absolutely. Okay. From Jeff Lowe, what's a realistic expectation for Barnes in year one? And you can parse that. I'll, I'll give my own after you, and you can parse oh, it out. In what, yeah. <laughs> um, I would say a realistic expectation is, is struggles with shooting volume, um, has uh, like really interesting feel flashes, um, and like looks like an adult on defense. Like won't look like a rookie in terms of scheme but we'll have moments where he tries to challenge like literally what we just talked about where he starts to challenge a little bit outside of his physical limitation and like will look like a bad defender because he's not being optimized in that moment so like i think you're the, he's going to have to learn the hard way that he can't switch on to ones um and he's going to, have to learn the hard way that he like he he is not a primary rim protector um so like i think if he learns those lessons and that like starts to fix the shooting volume then we're in a good place for like that's a good rookie year Learning those lessons and starting to fix the shooting volume, good rookie year. Nothing else really matters to me. Yeah, for myself, I think if I can offer a little bit of a different view than PD, uh, Raptors fans, every fan base is a little bit more in tune to certain parts of the on-court flow and feel because of what they've been subjected to from their team. Raptors fans are a little bit more conscientious in noticing, hey, this is really strong movement across the back end of the court. Like, oh, what's the court coverage here? Like, oh, wow, an X out. Maybe not an X out for every Raptors fan, but you get the gist of what I'm saying. (laughs) But Scotty Barnes will probably get a lot of positive attention from writers and from fans for his court coverage. And there'll be a lot of clips, you know, tracking him. Like, look where he started. He's got two closeouts and then he recovered to the corner for, uh, you know, a block or something like that. And I think fans will really appreciate that about him. There's going to be quite a few really fun pop plays in transition, whether that's him finishing or whether that's him with like a no look, you know, live dribble pass to a guy coming in from another lane. I think that stuff will be there, but I don't think there's like a rookie of the year case to be made here. And, you know, I think it would be quite an accomplishment within the framework of like how many good players they are coming out of the draft. If he was first team uh, all rookie, I think that would be a tremendous outcome for him, but maybe that's not in the cards, but lots of fun things at the very least, Uh, you know, PD said before and quite a few times in this podcast vibes. So yeah, I think that's a good answer for that. Uh, You're welcome for letting you go first PD, but okay. Uh, we have the Freddie Gillespie fan club at Pack Attack, who has been on this podcast before. Quote, given the Raptors track record of getting guys to improve macro skills like ball handling and shooting, what micro skills does Scotty really need to address to outperform his projection? Additionally, what issues of his are slash aren't masked by his current or sorry, by this current iteration of the Raptors? End quote. Okay, that's for you. That's not really for me, PD, unfortunately. Oh yeah, this is it's so wild how you picked all the questions that I have to answer first. Coincidence, <laughs> I think. Um so I don't think that there's like I think the macro skills are the micro skills. Like the thing with Scotty is that he's here because all the micro skills are like 
pretty great. Like, yeah, you'd want some finishing craft improvements, uh, especially as like a flasher or, you know, if he's going to run second side pick and roll, you're going to need stuff there. But like, it's also important to note that the, the Raptors uh, coaching staff that is lauded for shooting and uh, um, handle development isn't there anymore. Like it is in parts, but like the brain drain has officially begun and, and assuming that things in the past will hold to the future isn't necessarily a sound decision-making pro like isn't a, a sound reasoning because like with every every win you get you have one more eye looking to like how'd they do that hey can we get him over here so i don't think you can assume the same same rate of development also every player is different um but like again i i think that he has uh the, it's the movement skills laterally to try to get more fluid it's the flexibility um to to add wider ranges of motion uh, it's the explosiveness to to pop and then just shooting and handle like it, it is the macro and the micro stuff is, is i would say more body based and, and optimization based but yeah um a lot of the a lot of the little stuff is the stuff that's the best okay uh yeah i can't really add much to that but i'll go first on this next one how concerned we should be about, oh, and this is from Bulat Guzman at Oren Brooklyn, quote, how concerned we should be about rim protection and defensive rebounding with Siakam Barnes both on the court, end quote. Yeah, I think extremely concerned, but that's probably not the end goal of that lineup. If that mm -hmm. lineup is out there, you're trying to create a lot of turnovers, you're trying to create a lot of certain types of shots, and you actually want to not let the ball get to the rim. You want to be able to stonewall and be very switchable and stuff on the outside. Like it's not like, you know, a lot of the popular defenses that were played in the playoffs where there's really strong drop going on. And the guy they have dropping is an immense rim protector. And he's, you know, he's eating guys for dinner when they come down into the lane. If you're playing Scotty and Pascal, you're going to struggle immensely on the defensive glass. And probably even though Pascal, I think for his position and for his body type, can actually defend the rim quite well. He has a lot of pop getting over there and his timing appears to be really good. But I still think you're that's really tough to do. I think you would still OG is still the nominal, you know, OG and Pascal are switching between the nominal five and four if that's the case. I don't even think Scotty is fulfilling that role. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that, PD? Yeah, I think he's going to struggle struggle tremendously, especially when um uh when he gets like quick timed. So like I think that he can strength a lot of like the weaker guys. Like he can stonewall people, but like if he has to meet people at the summit or like go get a ball when it's late, he's just not going to be able to do that because he doesn't have the pop. And um, I think that there is like, there's some uh, misunderstanding about like how his athleticism works. It's not that he's unathletic. It's just that in the way that you would want a rim protector or a play finisher to be athletic, like in specific testing areas, he's really poor. Because those are like about you know refractory athleticism. How fast can you sprint, hop, and then jump? Um, and yeah, uh, how do you feel about like a, a Scotty at the five, Chris Boucher at the four lineup? I don't think Chris Boucher has the. I don't think he has the court mapping to really move that along. Maybe if he's like really feeling it one day, but I, I struggle to see that working really well yeah. the theoretically i think there's you're hitting on something there though defensively I, obviously you'd invert it on offense um but defensively i mean the idea being like scotty sort of like gets vertical and then boucher is there to clean it up you would need a hell of a rebounder at the three 
Mm-hmm. Because like Scotty's a like a solid defensive rebounder for like sort of like the, the wing forward that he is um, at an NBA level. Um, he, he certainly hustles, but like you do not want him to be the primary rebounder and playing him with Boucher. Well, it sounds really fun. Like you're basically going to need a, a three who's like, hey, I need you to be, to be the best three rebounder ever, that the world's ever seen. So like, I don't know. I, I think that there's going to be an adjustment period where people start to realign expectations and also like recognize that like, while Scotty is a Swiss army knife, that doesn't mean it's a solution to every lineup. And that like some of these are going to look very funky because like, I don't necessarily want OG covering for him if he's the five and OG's the four. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't think that that's an optim. I think that that's an optimization of Scotty to get Scotty to the five, but it's not like OG can play ISO. Like you can put OG on an Island to be cool. You can't, you can't be an Island defender. And a help side guy, like that's so much work, and it's 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 offsetting because like what happens if they put like the star in the slot? You can't really help over. What are you supposed to do? Mm-hmm. That's yeah, great point. Uh, what's the sorry? The cool thing is that while some of this might sound like it's down on Scotty Barnes, a lot of the things that we're listing as positive are things that you'll actually pick up and you'll appreciate. And it, there are things that are a little bit under talked about as far as how defense works. And a lot of it is just attributed to like, well, it's intangible, but it, it's partly intangible, but it's partly, you know, Scotty's physical and athletic makeup that will allow him to succeed in ways that fans will realize as the, as the season goes on and you'll get more accustomed to, I mean, everybody has plays from OG or Pascal or Boucher you know, and Boucher being, you know, the most, fa- the most fallible defender of all, but they have signature plays, things that you've come to recognize they're very good at. Yudo Watanabe is maybe, you know, one of the best closeout guys in the whole league. So it'll come along, and I think we'll enjoy the, the defensive prowess of Scotty in a bunch of different ways. Uh, here's something that we kind of addressed, but uh, just a, a short answer on it since they asked the question. From that underscore ball player, quote, would Scotty ever consider running center one day and point guard the other day, depending on the matchups and roster availability, since he is a player that has the capability of playing one through five. So just a, if you have a summary on that. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, Scotty is going to be a possessional player one through five. So like there are possessions and there are lineups where like you'd have him be as the strong side one protector and he would initiate offenses against certain coverages against certain teams. But like having him be a full-time point guard is a misallocation of resources because like he's a good position, like for his, the style of player he is, he's a good ball handler. So leverage that. Cause like if you, if you were, he's bringing up the ball, like you're just going to put a guard on him and like mm-hmm. he struggles to create against guards sometimes. So like, I think that, one of the benefits of a Swiss Army knife is that there are a lot of mismatches. It's just that, like in the NBA, you want to target those mismatches so that they cause advantage. And the, that advantage doesn't happen 94 feet from the hoop. It doesn't happen putting a guy directly in front of the rim on defense. It happens by targeting moments that can start runs. The runs change the lineup, and then you you're comfortable. Like getting a 4-0 run here because you went to a weird you know snug pick and roll look. You you got a you know a 5-0 run here because you had Scotty at the five and you blitzed every pick and roll for you know three possessions and you just turn it off i think that nurses is, is specifically qualified to do a lot of that where he just like will be like this is the lineup where we do with this weird thing and this is the lineup where we do with this weird thing um but the idea of him you know sliding between these things like he, there's times he'll bring up the ball to initiate a specific set um that's a that is a fantastic thing for his position that's a fantastic uh thing for his versatility but the idea of him being like ben simmons where it's just like he's the full-time one and then on defense he does this it's, 
I think that that is a, uh, I think that that's a, a bit aspirational and not in a bad way. Like, I think that he is a specific type of fun player. It's just like, there's a lot more wrinkles to it than a guy like Ben, who's pretty flat. Like he does two things really well <laughs> and everything else is kind of question marks where Scotty does a lot of things pretty well. And you have to figure out how to maximize that. And that's often, you don't want to send those players into a specific role. You want them to mm-hmm. leverage those talents against like sized or, you know, like skilled players, something like that. But I think, yeah, that's just because you have point guard skills doesn't mean you go to the, the one like Giannis and Tetacumpo coming out of the draft. Everybody was like, Oh, he has point guard skills. He could be a six foot nine point guard. And now he's what Giannis is, which is based on his athletic profile at his size one of the most unique players to ever come into the NBA and, you know, a finals MVP and an NBA champion. And it has nothing to do with being a point guard. It is almost the exact inverse. So yeah, just let players grow and try and develop them. And yeah, I don't see him as a one or anything like yeah. that. Uh, this is a, I, I think I speak for you here when I say this is a pro weirdness podcast and you want yeah. to bring that, we- <laughs> you want to bring that weirdness to your position rather than being like, Oh, instead of being like a, a point guard who can kind of dribble, you're a five who can really dribble and mm-hmm. that like those adjectives slide by position and by usage. And the more weird you can be at your position, the more valuable it is versus like being competent. Like Ben Simmons is like a competent rim runner, but you don't necessarily want to play him at the five full time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. Uh, Row chicken one also asked about Scotty at the point and says, thank you for the pod so far. We answered the Scotty at the point thing, but thank you. I'm glad you appreciate the podcast. Very nice to hear that. Um, Sam from Kate B. Doll. Sam, thanks for this. A question, why is Scotty so perfect? Thanks again. I'll hang up and listen. So this probably just gives us an opportunity to talk about Scotty. The vibes. The vibes. Yeah. Yeah, the vibes. If you, if you want to lead off on vibes, what you think of Scotty so far, draft outfits. He was wearing some dunks coming off the plane. Like, what are your thoughts on Scotty, the person? I mean, the, uh, I mean, the stories you hear behind the scenes about Scotty are just like, uh, seems like the most well-adjusted and uh, um, like self-aware young man you'll ever see. Like, he shakes everybody's hand. He tries to learn as much as he can about like the staffers. He's trying to make sure that everybody's having a good time. He's making sure that he's not obtrusive in any way. You know, um, he's bringing energy to every single practice because one he needs it but he knows that like life is better when other people are also smiling and like he could not clap and have fun but like why not have fun um i love that he hasn't taken the hat off um (laughs) yeah uh, i mean i wouldn't either if i got drafted um uh i miss his hair i would like him to grow his hair back um he used to have like really big hair um couple like just big twists uh when he shaved it going into senior year it was really hard to find him because that's just like the only thing i knew him as i'm hoping it makes a comeback um i don't think i think the dunks are a inferior shoe to a lot of other nike models um i i don't appreciate their okay i appreciate their comeback because i am a jordan one and uh um, blazer guy and blazers were hot like 10 years ago i grabbed a whole bunch of them i've wrote it out because there's a simple high top very you know a lot of options but not you know it's it's uh, a classic silhouette and then about 
three years ago, they jumped off. Um, driving the prices of all the blazers I hadn't gotten yet really high, frustrating. And so the dunk came back and suddenly the interest in the blazers fallen off. Prices are back normal. I appreciate that. So while I don't own any dunks, I plan to own any dunks. I think the dunks are, you know, uh, the lesser stepchild of, uh, of a number of Nike silhouettes. Um, I am appreciative of the buzz that they have because it takes the heat off of some of the stuff I do like. We're almost in the exact same boat. Ones and blazers to me. That's just it. And Chucks. I like Chucks a lot too. I'm like, go ahead. And they're a little unsupportive. Yeah, totally. I just, uh, you know, my feet are jacked from a life of basketball. So I, I just, I can't quite do it. Uh, I'm also not on like the Espiladra or, or however you say it, like the like the cotton shoes. They're like they, they're basically sandals with like a piece of you know a piece of cloth over top. I can't do those either. You know those made a comeback like five years ago, and it's just like look, man, I have some I have some special needs. Just like cover my gnarly feet. You know, give me a clean, easy look, and just I can I can mess with some of the high dunks, but every single time I'm like, what I really wish was this is a pair of ones. Yes. Like every, every, every good dunk. I'm like, you know what this reminds me of some Chicago ones or like, Mm -hmm. Oh, this reminds me of, and the answer is always like a, a, a a nice play pair of blazers though. I will say, I don't like the double tongue GTs or the double, like the ones with the high gator on them. Um, Are those the Sakai's? No, no, the, they're the, uh, they're the blazers. You'll see, you'll see some of the like newer models that kind of have like a second piece of canvas Mm -hmm. uh, around the toes. That's okay, yes, too, yes, yes, yes. That, that's a little too busy for me. I feel like they do some weird color blocking there. Just want like a solid, again, solid color blocking. We can get crazy with colors, but I like the I like it clean and easy throughout the thing. But yeah, dunks are just they're a little bit too Diet Coke for me. I'll never have a dunk. Never will. But I I do appreciate the the blazer love. What's what's your favorite blazer color? Like what's what's the uh, do you got the maroons, uh, the the UNC blues? Like, what's what's the move for you? Uh, there is a pack from two thousand and eight called the Tech Pack um, that use some uh, that use uh, a multiple uh, interesting materials. Um, there's one that's like tech fleece, but it's really padded. You have one that's a like uh, uh, like a a suede, and then a third one that is sort of like the same material that like bombers are made out of. Uh, bomber jacket not planes um so like yeah i'm that's those are my three go-tos that i would probably the most um uh also like the the Todd's, which are a uh, a red and black flannel pair um and i love a tonal shoe generally like tonal if, if a show if a shoe is tonal and it has some uh different materials like i'm very in on that my favorite pair of blazers I have is, uh, they came out like maybe a year and a half ago. It's uh, tumbled leather and snakeskin, well, faux snakeskin, mm-hmm. but they're red on the inside, blue on the outside swoosh. And that's, that's for me. That's what I like. That's my favorite pair. I also have like, I'm, I'm a derivative of hype beast culture because I have the CDG Converse because, you know, mm-hmm. of course, but yeah, Jordan ones are like everything to me. I also like Jordan right. fours a lot. Uh, yeah, we've talked about I own one pair of Jordan fours, um, uh, and uh, yeah, I mean we're here at one. So just like, can I get your two favorite ones? 
You don't you don't have to own them, just like the ones that you love. Okay. Hmm. That's a really good question. I think my favorite pair of ones, I was really, when I first got into shoes, I was really obsessed with the band ones. But I okay. think it's probably Chicago's and the UNC's. I think they're both really classic. And I think that like the UNC is a super fun color pop. And uh, the Chicago's are maybe the most iconic shoe ever outside of, you know, Converse. And that's just because Converse is so much cheaper. Okay. I mean, I can, I can get there. Um, I will say that I really like the Lance Mountain Nest. Uh, Jordan okay. Ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Very cool. I, okay. This is again, an, another uh, take white or black pair. Uh, I like the white pair. Um, I like my shoes worn. Uh, mm-hmm. I having new shoes gives me an anxiety attack. So the first thing <laughs> that I look at when I get new shoes is how will they look when they're beat and getting shoes that age well. So like, you know, nice leather materials that you can just have for like 10 years um, is important. So like the white black ones, the, the Lance mountains in either pair, um, the Kentuckys are one that I've really worn warmed on recently. That that dark blue. Um, yeah, this has been color talk. You know, I don't like the Kentuckys. Like, I they're a good shoe, but I uh, that'd be probably lower tier for me, honestly. Okay, if you had to pick one from the color, so you 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 pick you're picking the UNCs. We're talking like white and the the original UNCs, the white with the the Carolina blue. Mm-hmm. Over Kentucky's, over UNLV, uh, over I guess the newer like Michigan pair, which is blue body, yellow, uh, yellow colorings. Yeah, yes. I mean, for me, it's just the like it's. I love a good midnight navy. On my hats, I do. I have a Yankees and a you know a Tigers hat, so I like it on a cap. It just, I've, but I've I've seen it as a like a an everyday wear shoe, and it looks phenomenal. Like, oh yeah, again, I, like a, a very well worn Jordan One, like the you know the the I'm sure like the toe, uh, the the heel is like diagonal from you know just a heel drag or whatever. To me, that's the best looking shoe when when beat, and I will be acquiring a pair you know at some point in the near future. I have a for the love of the game pack, the metallic red pair, mm-hmm. and it, basically the toe cap is like completely ripped apart because that I played so much basketball in that shoe. And that's, that's one of the, my favorite things is that um, I've played basketball in like Yeezys. I've played basketball <laughs> most recently in the Harden Volume 5s. And <laughs> man, which are a terrible shoe. If anybody's listening, don't buy that shoe, please. It just, it won't fit your foot properly. James Harden, I don't know if this was more in tuned with what he wears or if this was just a way to like package a failed Kanye West design into a shoe, which worked on me, but it's uh yeah, that's not a shoe. But you can hoop in Air Jordan ones, and I think you'll just walk away fine. That's I, I could hoop in that shoe all day long. Uh yeah, that's not for my feet. Uh, I get, <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I'm I'm a tall, skinny person, so I have just like I have you know those like really high uh, insole feet, and boy, I, imagining hooping in like Jordan fours like gives me anxiety. I uh, I played I, in I, Jordan fourteens, and I rolled my ankle the first time I ever played in them. Uh, 
I will say the worst shoe experience I ever had was uh, when I was in high school, we were sponsored by Adidas and we were given the pro model and pro models like a shell toe shoe with uh, really solid sides. Like, I mean, just like, it's a, it is a shoe that you could never even like fold even a little bit. The thing is it's solid. And my foot did not, like I, I had to wear like four pairs of socks to play in them. And it, <laughs> oh, no. and it was, it, it felt like the inside of a scuba shoe to me. Like it just like, like if I, if I like slid my foot side to side, it's totally possible. And these things were like as choked up as, human, as, as they could be. Um, yeah, it's some gnarly, some gnarly, uh, 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 foot action afterwards. Um, very tough. Um, yeah. Now we've talked about uh, uh, good footwears. Good footwears. Yeah. I might. Yeah, we went for quite a while. I might have to stitch this into the back end. We'll see. Yeah. I, I don't. I, I. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Johnson and Banton. Uh, well, I'll introduce this in a better question format than just reading this. But okay, David Johnson, who. Henry Ward will probably come on and wax poetic about in a few days, but what are your thoughts on him initially? If I remember correctly, when we talked about second round guys, that was one of the guys that you kind of deferred on because you said you hadn't finished uh, your scouting on them yet. But what do you think now? Um, I mean, they definitely fit an archetype because like they're big playmakers. Like both of them are, have real passing drops. Both of them aren't necessarily good at, uh, aren't good at creating an advantage, but like when they do get advantage, they can make good decisions. Again, both are much bigger than like our bigger playmakers, um, positionally. Um, Banton's probably a better shooter. Johnson has some like Johnson, Johnson's issues, though. Like, I mean, I think Johnson's the better prospect by, by a good amount. Um, but like he just struggled to like really show that much his second year. Like he, uh, at Louisville, the, the first year was much more promising. The second year, they had some like trouble uh figuring out like the relationship like the the, the on ball duties with Kyle Jones and just like across the board you're just like okay that's that's cool like yeah you're showing like th- there's a lot of flashes but like there's some whole games just like you kind of didn't feel like he was there um but he shot 38 percent for three so I don't really think he's a 38 percent three-point shooter um it looks good on the numbers but like the rest of the sample doesn't really hold that does not for a dude who's built like a tank and has like really nice runway athleticism just doesn't get fouled. Um, some of this handles, some of this is his movement style, some of this is finishing package. Um, to me, he's like a prime candidate to get to the like use the G League pathway and be bouncing between the nine and five. Um, he seems like a guy who could, could play NBA minutes quickly, but like you just want to get him more because he kind of had I don't want to say a lost developmental year, but like a more sideways developmental year. Um, at Louisville sophomore season. Um, again, the flashes are really interesting. The positional rebound is interesting, but like you just need more in any direction from him. Um, and the easiest way to get there is like, got to get to the free throw line. I mean, I'll say that with basically any guard that you point me to with the exception of one. And this might be my time to segue, um, (laughs) to something that, uh, uh, Dalano Blanton is a very interesting prospect. He does, he has an interesting mystic being six, nine and and having passing chops and, uh, you know, interesting movement skills, but like you needed to pick Sharif Cooper. Uh, Sharif Cooper had a 50 free throw rate in the SEC um, and is the best player in this class of getting two feet in the paint. I understand that the Raptors have an aversion to small players at the one after it's like somewhat failed experiments uh, with smaller point guards. Um, Sharif isn't 
uh, is, is like pretty slight, but he's like over six feet tall. Um, have multiple teams are in the process. And uh, I believe shooting to be the easiest thing to fix, like broadly speaking. Um, if your concern is though, like, you know, does he shoot? It's like, well, if he's a backup point guard, he'll put two feet in the pan every single time. And if you're envisioning a world where you have four, six, nine dudes who are all strong, like, I think you can slip in one dude who doesn't, can't really play defense. Like, you're, you built a construction for that. Um, I thought it was like the clearest thing in the world that one of these picks was going to be Sharif Cooper. And it just wasn't like, full disclosure, I would have, if I were in the Raptors' war room, I would have made a strong case for picking Sharif Cooper at four. Um, because he has two superlative skills in this draft, because next year has no point guards, like basically at all, um, like all the way down. It's, it's, it, it's maybe one of the most barren point guard spots in, or like primary creator guard spots in the last like 10 years. Um, and there's not a real guarantee that like they'll have a long-term replacement. And I think that if you can get a valuable rookie point guard, that's a, a very, very easy cheat code uh, to team building. Sort of like the rat, uh, as the the Bucks kind of learned with Brogdon, um, yeah. Um, that's my only like. If you're going to continue to take these bets on six eight guys, you have to mix it up with dudes who 100 percent will create advantage because neither Banton or Johnson or even like Scotty like are advantage creators in the sense that you would think of ball in hand. So to offset, like if you're gonna, it doesn't the ratio doesn't have to be one to one, but you know, pick one of Johnson or Banton, whichever one is higher on your board, and then take a big old swing with Cooper knowing that like he does things that no one else on this roster can do. Like even Fred doesn't have that level of separation. Mm -hmm. This might be an unfair ask of me, but where I use the term advantage creation all the time. So do you, it's growing in popularity, but for the listener who's saying, you keep saying advantage creation, but these are just basketball players. Do you have anybody in mind that you could say they plateaued because they didn't have this? And so realistically, that's why it's such an important part of your heuristic, your calculus into what makes, you know, maybe Sharif Cooper, a guy who went, what is it, 48th, could have been considered at number four. Like there's a there's a bit of a crossing of the wires there, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, Raptors fans are extremely familiar with the playoff struggles of DeMar DeRozan. There was a player who can get shots, but does he get in the playoffs to DeMar DeRozan get easy looks at the rim or create rotation so that other player got, players got easy looks? No. Did that mean that like when he was relegated into a role where that wasn't important, he became more valuable? But as a primary creator, he did not cause advantage, which to me is anytime a defense is in rotation or forcing a defense to make a hard decision. So it's like you're, you're, you're downhill, you have two feet in the paint, and the, the corner defender has to, or you know, the defender has to choose between stepping up to, you know, uh, challenge at the rim or stick with the shooter in the corner. If you can't get to that spot, you struggle with advantage creation just from a, you know, uh, having the ball in the perimeter. This okay. roster doesn't necessarily have that. Like OG is the best bet for that. I think Pascal, um, I lean more towards like, I don't want to say like Tampa was real, but like it's it like, I don't think that I would want Pascal creating from a flat situation. I think OG is a better bet for that. It's also like the way Pascal moves is best attacking a defense that's already tilted. It's so unpredictable. It's so uh, like I want to go to him later in clocks, but as the, as the primary action, I don't necessarily want him as the guy up top. Um, It also makes it easier for him to get in the flow with open catch and shoot jumpers. 
I think like it, it's not a knock on him being like the, the primary option, but necessarily having to make all of the primary advantage and decision making. Like you can be the best player on the floor and not bring the ball up or, you know, not run the first pick and roll. Um, it wouldn't hurt to have a guy who you know every single time there's a pick and roll king is a serious threat to get downhill and will cause rotations. That's that's my biggest concern with this Raptors draft. And maybe it could solve in free agency or if there is a trade or, you know, a million of things that can happen between now and when they, you know, toss the ball in the air in the first game of the season. But, you know, the Raptors are one of those teams that like can get caught in ugly games and get caught in like really ugly series of possessions because there's nobody who creates that advantage every time down or, you know, threatens that advantage or defenses have to truly worry about it. And I think that that's when teams are talking, when I guess when there is Twitter slander about Pascal and to, which is all terribly misguided because he's an awesome player. I think what they're actually referring to is roster construction and that he's being asked to do something that isn't necessarily his optimal role. And that all the, the team has to do is just simply give him 10% less creation usage in specific circumstances. And everything makes sense. But also this, the types of situations they put him in, there's no screen help. There's nothing like that either. It's just no. An, no. an isolation at the 45 extended is a huge ask for, as you say, a guy like Pascal Siakam, who is syncopated, is starting from a flat situation. That's really tough and just requires on these a lot of craft that I guess he's not comfortable applying in those types of situations. And anybody who watched in 2018-19, where he had this incredible bag of finishes, a wide array of shoulder slots and finishing angles and could go off the glass at 36 miles an hour or 0.2. Like it's just had a bunch of things in his bag. When the defender isn't catching up, when the defender is sitting right on him, he just, he isn't on balance to make those kinds of plays. And it's, it showed. I mean, there's, yeah. I think we, we, you and I might disagree actually on uh, OGN and OB and Pascal, like who would be better. And maybe we'll have that discussion later on, but you, that's a great point about the advantage creation though. Yeah, I mean, I I just think that that is my concern with the way that this roster is being built. Um, is that like there are a lot of six, eight, six, nine guys with the same creation profile, and you're go- like, in my mind, that's the best time to start swinging. This is my same argument for the Knicks taking Sharif or, or a player like Sharif. It's just like you have an awesome defense, so you can take one of those guards off know that the defense will still probably be awesome and get a new dynamic, get a player who does operate and move differently and, and have a different usage and, and be more comfortable in those spaces where like Pascal doesn't have to create from an ISO from 45, seven times a game. What if it's two? What if the defender doesn't ha- get to see that much of his, uh, of his sidesteps or that much? So now those, the, the optimization probably goes up because the defender hasn't seen it. You know, if you play a team four times, now they've had 30 isolations at the end of the clock against Pascal. On number 28, or after number 28, they probably know everything that he's got. Mm-hmm. And they're probably pretty comfortable. But if it's been, you know, four games and they've seen two possessions each time, after seven, they don't, they're, they're not feeling great. I think that by minimizing the specific, you know, troubles with an advantage creator, even if it's just couple times a game is going to do a lot for everybody and like those players are not necessarily easy to come by and i think that the idea was fred van fleet was going to do it but it's also like not necessarily where his bag of tricks lies Mm -hmm. it's not very tenable the point you make about the raptors being caught up in kind of a slog at times definitely resonates offensively 
But for viewers, you, you probably do recognize how the Raptors work like hell to mitigate inherent advantages that other teams are getting when they have an, a, you know, a decent to really good advantage creator. And it takes you know, a Herculean effort by a defense to really mitigate that, to make that not work and to recover and rotate to make sure that there's no advantage created, to stop it in its tracks, or even to recover after an advantage is created. That's incredible defense, and the Raptors can get there with you know an array of guys on the roster. But offensively, as PD says, you can see it is just not there. So Sharif would have been really, really interesting. And I think it'll be tough to sell people on maybe even selecting him at four because if he goes 48, why would you pick him at four? But it's not about you know where he gets picked. It's not about that. It's about introducing versatility to a roster and advantage creation to the roster. So I understand why you were disappointed with uh, no Sharif. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, it doesn't even necessarily need to be a Sharif. Like, I mean, right. if you had if you had flipped, I mean, granted, like David Jones is going to be, uh, David Jones is going to be a great like pick for this roster. It's that like I would like to see gambles on that archetype. So whether it's like you know it, whether it's buying a pick to try to get or trading one of those and buying a pick to get to try to get up to like you know, Bones Highland who creates advantage, like players that are outside the six nine profile, like there's going to need to be some swings on those guys. And I just thought that there was an interesting one available at the slot, knowing that that's where this roster is is moving, and that like that's the type of dude who does get overpaid. So like if your choice is like gamble on a smaller guy who you could always like. And don't worry about it in two years. Like it's not, nobody's going to get, Masai's not going to get in trouble for missing its, you know, a pick in the mid forties. This seems like a really high risk or low risk, high reward gamble and getting as many of those as possible for a good team is always important, especially when you have a developmental framework that you think can optimize guys like that. Yeah. Agreed. And I think that takes us to, you know, kind of the end of the podcast as far as, the draft stuff, and I want to talk to you about kind of the league and it. the Sharif Cooper thing should segue nicely in that if the Raptors are just grabbing a bunch of the 6'9 guys and, you know, Bobby Webster, you know, maybe it's just a sound bite for people to run with. Maybe that's actually how he intends the roster to be built. But um, grabbing like-sized guys and then teaching them skills, you can't teach everything. And you can't get everything to, you know, a level where it can be leveraged against NBA defenses. And the Raptors have taught a lot of stuff and have developed a lot of stuff, but it's really difficult to develop like dominant advantage creation or dominant pull-up shooting and that kind of stuff. And those two go hand in hand a lot of the time too, but guards in the NBA, they loom a lot larger. I think there's an undercurrent now of people saying, are guards starting to be undervalued? We've the wing agenda has been very big for quite a few years now. What do you make of lead guards in the NBA at this point in time? I think that there's been a natural uh, counter movement of wings getting all of the decision making and figuring out the the best way of optimizing guards without having them take the ball out of like a good playmaking wing's hands. Um, so like, this was sort of my argument for like Jalen green being awesome is like, he doesn't have to make decisions. You can use him in, in, you know, the Chris Finch, uh, version of, of Ant-Man role. You can sort of use him in a guard version of Zion role where it's like, have him always catch the ball with a crazy tilt. Like defenses are going to be so worried about him dunking on people that like it allow you to run secondary offense out of his, you know, his cutting gravity. 
out of the law of gravity. Um, and that if you can just, you know, get his motor revving to always see that stuff, like you can run some really interesting things out of it while pairing, like you could have a, a, like a Gordon Hayward have the ball in his hands and it would still be maximizing Jalen Green. Now with point guards, there's always going to be a pushback because every five foot 11 dude is going to feel a type of way when you're like, yeah, you're not dribbling no more. Um, their entire life they've had, they've dribbled a bunch and suddenly they're not going to. I think that to, I think that dislocating what we would consider like star skills, like, you know, pull up shooting, um, uh, the ability to like finish really well. Like those are the things that are going to start mattering more to point guards. Again, this is why I bring up Bones Island because Bones Island is a hilarious shooter and that uh, he shoots from like, he has range that I would broadly describe as like the first six rows. Um, and it's going to be really fun seeing him with Jokic, but like, it doesn't, you don't need him to make decisions. You can run him off actions. Like he might be the point guard nominally in a lineup. If you're playing, you know, four, six, nine dudes, because he'd be the smallest guy on the court, but he wouldn't have what we would consider point guard decision-making load. So I think that the revenge of the point guards is, is becoming the hyper efficient, like play finishers, but, you know, essentially being the Deandre Jordan of point guards where you don't have to make a whole bunch of decisions. If you're playing with like, you know, if you're playing with Braun, like what decisions are you supposed to be making? That's not like they kick it to you. If you think first clause isn't there, then you can work a little bit, but it's, having instead of point guard being a like a connector idea it's them being um, play finishers it's them being uh, the ability to space gravitate and, and optimize your either heliocentric wing heavy playmaking wing or motion-based offense and i think that that's uh, what we've been generally considered like backup point guards but like imagine if if you taught a hyper athletic point guard the lessons of jalen brunson so they're going to be like, oh, wait, there's money in that and I can get to the rim. Oh, I'm gonna, I, there's a lot here. So I think that that's um, a, certainly a pathway. And like, well, Sharif is not that because Sharif was the best passer in the draft. So he could actually like make a huge volume of decisions. I think that as, as you get more comfortable with a wing like OG or Pascal you know, running 30 pick and rolls a game or whatever, finding a point guard that can uh, – be synergistic with that development idea. Who's not going to be like, well, now I'm here. So that number goes down um, is important. It's just, that's not how we've traditionally thought about things. Okay. And then, so that segues really nicely into Kyle Lowry, a guy who can find synergy seemingly with anybody and appears to be on the, the sunset of his time with the Raptors. Who knows if it's Miami, Dallas, New Orleans. Uh, but what do you think of, you know, his next contract? Are you expecting? Are you expecting him to age gracefully? What are your thoughts on Kyle Lowry and maybe the next chapter? Um, I mean, has Kyle Lowry done ever ever done anything gracefully? Like it's, it's <laughs> not it's not it's not really how his game works, you know. Like it's it's a, it's fits and starts and uh, and charges and explosions and emotion. Like I think that like being the level of shooter that he is is basically going to keep him. Like he could be Jose Calderon forever. Um, but like, yeah, um, I assume he's going to get a max, Like that's always what I've assumed. I mean, it doesn't matter how much Mike Conley takes, like the Maverick that Mike Conley being off the market doesn't make the Mavs need him less. It doesn't make Miami need him less. If anything, he can say it drives his market value up. Cause he's going to be like, Oh no, like you guys really need me now. Cause he can't even bid me against Mike Conley. Um, 
Yeah, I, I think that he'll age well. I think that he like things will go well. I mean, obviously the rim volume is going to shrink. He, the reliance on grifting is going to go up. The defensive versatility, like I think that you're not going to want him on true point guards anymore, and you're going to see more of him guarding the worst wing on the floor, able to to body them up. And obviously, when you're a small guy, you get a pass to just like do reckless violence, mm-hmm. uh, which is just uh, one of those baked in things that referees uh, seem to allow. I'm letting little dudes get away with whatever. Um, so yeah, I'm. I think it'll go good. Um, he seems to have be hunting you know, good fits, which like, you know, most lower guys do, but also those good fits seem to be offering quite a bit of money, which is a win-win. Um, yeah. I, I don't have any real concern. Like I'm also not like a contracts guy. So it's like, Oh, he, that contract might be $5 million underwater. It's like, well, I mean, if he's optimizing Luca, like who cares? That's with Luca, you're going to have a couple different eras. If you, if you handle him correctly, if you make him happy, you get a few different windows of championship contention. So like, Oh yeah, spend the money, man. Yeah. I think. I mean, uh, that fi- if you don't spend the five million dollars, like I'm sure that'll go over well with him. He's like, yeah, we lost ten extra games this year. However, we saved five million dollars. Like I'm sure he'd love that. Uh, right. You know, him and Lowry essentially being wired the exact same. Yeah, uh, Dallas the, is the, my the, favorite the, landing spot for him too. Oh, I just really complaining. It would be uh, just. <laughs> like they'll have sprints to the referee and like, tell me you don't want to see like an offensive foul get called on some random like rookie or whatever. And those two just run over to just like have a meeting with a referee. He's like, well, what of you? And they have to like <laughs> Rochambeau to figure out who's going to harass a league employee for five minutes. Yeah. Beautiful. It's fantastic stuff. Okay. One last question before I pick your brain on OG, because I really like that. Gary Trent jr. Uh, rumored by uh, Raptors spaces today with Jake Fisher uh, somewhere in the realm of three years, 50 million. I don't know if incentives are included in that. A lot of contracts have incentives, but that doesn't really get reported outside of like beat reporters being like, Hey, by the way, this is, you know, kind of couched into the contract, but uh, he might be part of the Raptors. Maybe he won't be who knows who's going to try and be competitive with that. He's restricted. Uh, Gary Trent Jr. When I watched, I watched every usage point of his Portland Trailblazers season, including you know a handful of games. But I just wanted to see when he's ending possessions, what is happening. And I don't see much of a path forward for Gary Trent Jr. to a you know a much better player outside of just becoming a staggeringly good shot maker. And I think yep. he's at the point where he's a good shot maker, mm-hmm. and not not great, not anything like that, but. Is there any reason to feel either more optimistic than I currently do or more pessimistic? I mean, I guess the other way would be like extreme shot versatility where mm-hmm. he's like capable of shooting with crazy negative momentum. And like, he's a good, he's a very good shooter. Like, but I just don't, I don't really see that happening where it's like, can he get on the like Duncan Robinson diet of jumpers, which again is like grenade I mean, DHOs like, into the corner. Yeah. Like, yeah, like, 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 like to be 100% clear. Like that is a the world's hardest shot selection, and mm-hmm. to shoot well on that means that you're like one of the five best shooters on the face of the earth. Uh, that's a pretty difficult pitch, um, <laughs> especially like I think that one of the things with like Gary Trent Jr. is he, he's a like uh, again contracts to me are just like it, it, the money doesn't matter if you have the team like. $17 million to a team that needs shot making is totally different than $17 million to a team that's like, yeah, we like shooters, but like we have a bunch of them. 
Like if your team is starved for shot making, you have the passers, you have the advantage creators, but you don't have anybody to like put the ball in the hole. Like, yeah, 17, totally. Do you think the Raptors are a team that needs shot making? Do you think that's the best allocation of resources? No, I, I don't. Okay. But I also, like, they need, and that's the thing too, like Gary Trent Jr., he, he gets his shots out of, you know, dribble handoffs, out of like floppy sets, out of pin downs and flares. And you could do that for a lot of players, I think. And I think you can approach a similar amount of efficiency and volume on the aggregate. And you could also have better defense in the lineup. Now, I understand why people, you know, players are not assets, but uh, you don't want to lose the, the value in the market that Norman Powell presented and you traded to get Gary Trent Jr. And if you're trying to build a team and these guys operate as if they have value, in the market and you're trying to win a championship, this sounds dumb because I'm trying not to speak about players in a dehumanizing way, but it's just... They are contracts. Like, like yeah. not that the players are, but, like, I think that the, the, the only way I can really look at it is that, like, you're thinking about contracts as a puzzle, which is, like, not dehumanizing. Like, for me, when I think of, like, oh, yeah, contracts are a puzzle. It has nothing to do with the player. It's just, right. like, does, does $17 million fit into our team our puzzle of our team contracts and it's like for some people absolutely for other people no and i feel like that's when you talk about a guy as a bad contract like i i kind of think that there isn't any because you can always generally like with the exception of like the summer 16 deals where like teams just went a little crazy for the most part people are with like it is capable for almost everybody to reach their general contract value uh, yeah canard canard in the playoffs when he had three games where he was providing stuff you're like oh hell yeah 16 yeah. like put it yeah. on the board like i'm sure that if you ask them like how much is a playoff win worth mm-hmm. they'd, be, they'd probably be like a couple million dollars probably you're like cool like realistically it doesn't matter like if you win three playoff games like you're worth whatever contract <laughs> um but i just uh, i i struggle with that same thing where i was like contracts even me out like they really do and thinking of that thinking of the team fit within a contract as puzzles is probably closer because like i mean the other systems where like chris ball might not be able to earn 44 like 44 million dollars makes sense yeah probably like i'm sure that like if he was on the calves like the, that's probably not the best allocation of resources but like if you put him in a good situation like he's worth every single cent of whatever the number is um, mm-hmm. again if guys get hurt that's different um and at that point we're like not really talking about the same dude but yeah uh, puzzles is the best I have. If there's somebody else has something better, please let me know because yeah, contracts are weird. Okay, so I would say with Gary Trent Jr., I think it is worthwhile if him not being there at a seventeen to twenty million dollar price allows for you to have some sort of flexibility to take a shot on a player like it doesn't have to be Malik Monk, but a player who has a higher upside at advantage creation. I think that is a more worthwhile route. If that isn't available to the Raptors and they can't and they want to ride out what they have going, then yeah, you sign Gary Trent Jr. and you hope that he, as a still a fairly young player in the NBA, continues to develop in meaningful ways. Is some craft gonna come along? Maybe. It didn't seem likely from what I saw on film. Like there's just a very strong aversion to contact that he has. 
He has, you know, a bit of shot versatility in getting away from contact. He's got a handful of step backs and sidesteps and all that kind of stuff. And, and he's a shooter. But yeah, if there's a, a route to a player with a more desirable skill set, then I would let Gary Trent Jr. walk at that price point. But that's a, that's a lot of hypotheticals. It's sort of the best way to do things. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so do you now want to segue into the OJ, o, OG Ananobi? Yes, please. Uh, okay. I'm going to clip this, actually, and tweet it at Emma Brown once, uh, once you finish up. So OG Ananobi, as perhaps the best creator on the Raptors, what's the pitch? I mean, the pitch is that, like, there's enough passing there um, that he merits, like, it, I say this as, like, I do not want Pascal running a X amount of frontside pick and rolls. Like, I, there is a hard limit for me, and given this roster construction, and given the way that, like, I've seen him be successful. I want him to have an amount just, you know, to, to get him comfortable, but I don't want to go over a certain amount. Lowry is most likely gone. Um, Fred has limitations. So, like, who's taking the rest of these pick and rolls? Like, Scotty, Scotty's running a small amount. I would much rather have him as the role man in any of these. So like, what's the next best option? I would think I like Pascal. Now I I don't want to get into the Pascal OG thing. Uh, Maybe we'll have that discussion like later on, but uh, let's, let's go with OG. Let's give him a handful of stuff and let's see what you think. Yeah. Um, I mean, last year he shot almost 40% from three. Um, the year before he shot almost 40% from three. Um, I don't think it's unreasonable to start asking him to take more off the dribble jumpers. Um, the progression is pretty intense. And I think that like with his, re- with, with the height of his relief point, like the idea of him rejecting a pick and roll into a sidestep isn't like an insane proposition. Um, and like people are going, I think that, even if he misses more this year, even if the numbers drop down to like 35, 36%, that like if teams step forward at all, he can get by them with strength. And this is a pathway for him getting additional advantage creation because like that environment is huge for his stride length. That's where he is most comfortable is when people are side by side with him, he's actually a step ahead because he can just length out and then length extend. Um, I also just want to see the limitations of his passing Um, because like there's, there's stuff there. And I feel like it hasn't with Lowry. There's just an amount of pick and rolls that like other people are going to get. And I don't even think it has to necessarily be pick and rolls, but like OG has consistently proven to be a smart one more passer who has a read for advantage. And even if it's just like him trying to pick out slight advantages will bode well. If you find another advantage, if, if you eventually a trade is made for another, you know, uh, on ball star and, and OG remains, that will add to his usage going forward. Like this is going to be his age 24 season. This is, you know, he's had, you know, one game with 43 games, one year, you know, a year where he didn't start at all. This is the time to really experiment and see like what he can add now that he's proven exactly what type of player he is and like what general usage works. I mean, we had another scoring bump last year. This is just this to me, this seems as the experimental season because you always know that you can get a guy who will just take a whole bunch of on ball reps. So if you can get OG, just like, I don't want to say like the Zach Levine point guard year, but it's the same idea of like throw him into new contexts, see what he gets. And even if he ends up not succeeding, that will be 
you know, uh, seasoning for the role he eventually has on the next playoff team. Finding out OG and Anobi's threshold is probably the most important indicator for what the Raptors can do as far as team building goes. So I, I agree with you 100%. His pull-up shot, I think he went like 30. I was tracking this last year or this season. I think he went 32 three-point attempts in between makes. And he had a really weird three-point pull-up thing that happened. And none of the process looked bad. It was just a really strange outlier because the year before he actually had quite a bit of success with it. And uh, yeah, just a weird thing. He was a little bit more hesitant to take him this year, but I don't see anything wrong with the the mechanics. Like he's, he's a pretty clean shooter. So like you say, to get into, you know, a sidestep or any type of pickup point where he gets comfortable and has that high release point that he shot over a lot of good contests as a pick and pop guy, just trying to apply that is and he, very meaningful. He's very, and he's very comfortable with the escape sidestep out of hard closeouts. Like that is his favorite thing. And, and mm-hmm. one of my favorite things about his game is like, if you hard close out, it's just pound dribble sidestep pull. So it's like, okay, same footwork pattern. If they hedge or if they, you know, if they stunt you at this pick and roll, hard pound sidestep pull. And I mean, like the, the distance he covers on those steps make it a, even if his like gather point is a little bit lower than I think you'd want. Like his, his process is like a little, he doesn't shoot at like the, the, like the Kuzma above your head point, which you'd kind of think for a guy is is a little bit more in front of his face. Um, The distance he covers on those side steps is going to be so big that that kind of mitigates it. Um, This is like the sort of revelation Dame learned learned as a one-step guy. It's like, if you get it out quick enough, it doesn't really matter your release point. As long as you're creating distance on, if you're, if you're releasing quick enough and you're creating is like that side step as big as possible, then it doesn't matter. So for me, if he can add that, that will start to add a lot more of the pick and roll coverages you ideally want for his strength level and for his movement skills. You get those, and then it's like experimenting with snakes, experimenting with you know step backs out of snakes, experimenting with the passing reads out of those things. Like to me, this is these. I think that there is a, a section of analysis I've seen. I was like, well, Scotty's going to have all those possessions. I'm like, I would prefer that not happen. Mm-hmm. I would prefer all of those possessions to go to OG with Scotty getting you know some like transition double drags and and stuff like that. Like. Imagine a, tr- a Scotty double drag where OG pops out of it to you know run a forty-five, and then you re-pick and roll out of that. So it's like you get an OG pop, and then if it, that's not there, then Scotty goes back and re-screens. And now we're into a very fun action where a team has to decide like how hard did you close out on OG the first time? Do you do you go under that pick and roll? Because I mean he's proven to be somewhat comfortable shooting off the dribble, going at least to his right. Like that's how I would start many Scotty OG possessions if they're the two bigs on the floor, or you know it's those two and. And Boucher or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's it should be interesting. I do like that though. OG. I hope he has a big year. But okay, let's. Do you do you have like a version of him in mind that he can hit? Like it doesn't have to be you know the clearest picture, but a blurry vision of an optimized, willing to meet his threshold. OG. What does that look like to you? Um, it'd probably be taking. 30% of his shots off the dribble as self-created shots or 30% of his shots as self-created off mm-hmm. the dribble shots. Um, that would be huge. Um, forcing pick and roll alternatives. Cause I feel like with OG, he's at the level where like teams have one way they guard him depending on defender and they kind of stick with it. I don't see like with Pascal teams have to shift depending on how the game goes. Like when he starts knocking down threes, that coverage shifts really fast. Um, 
And you know, depending on what kind of rim protection they have, they'll they'll try to shove him different ways. I feel like with OG, they have an idea and they stick with it. And I would just like a successful season is one where he takes more off the dribble, where he is capable of forcing and recognizing different pick and roll coverages. And we just get to see like exactly where the extremes of his game are. Because again, even if this is not his long-term role, he's now this like when you average 18, about 18 points per 36, like you're at the point where you need to figure out how high this could go. Mm-hmm. And because he's so versatile, like it's tempting to be like, oh, we'll give him a little this, a little that. Like, no, he's probably you need at least one year. And the, this last year obviously would have been preferable to try to just like, you know, force feed him possessions because like last year was obviously fake, and we know that. But um, unless we're talking about OG shooting numbers, and then they're extremely real. Um, it's the only thing that's real. Um, but like this season, I think the most important thing for me is just like his defensive uh, archetype is really set. His offensive archetype has quite a bit of, I don't want to say question marks, but like the, the outline of it could be so many different things. Mm-hmm. We have some central ideas like Grace Slasher, you know, uh, has uh, a lot of comfort out of, you know, uh, catch and shoot opportunities, you know, with sidesteps with, with a whole bunch of like little, you know, little skill points. Um, but where are the limits on ball? Where are the limits as a passer? Where are the limits in his handle? Can he shoot, you know, can he, you know, redirect a couple of times and then, you know, punch step to, to get into a jumper? You know, I think that, like, this is an opportunity for him to add a bunch of finishing craft. Like, if you're going to go to five dudes of the same build and same size, like, this is the, your current bet on the roster of being a guy who can do a lot of those things because, like, he's just more comfortable shooting off the in a lot of different art ways than, than OG is and certainly much more comfortable than Scotty is. Mm-hmm. Also, that's if you can get the pull up going, and your mechanics are like friendly to that. Who's who's the most? Who's the easiest line to draw? Like Kyle Lowry, he, his pull up had a huge um, correlation with his finishing at the rim. Mm-hmm. Victor Oladipo is probably the best, mm-hmm. right? The jump yeah. from Oklahoma City to Indiana legitimately became an All NBA guy because. He, the rim was wide open for him once he started even shooting an okay number pulling yeah. up just even, because it again, up so just much. taking a lot of times mm-hmm. it's just taking because teams are just like I can't give this up yeah so I mean Oladipo I would say actually despite the the size difference how he was utilized in OKC and how OG is utilized in Toronto there's some overlap there not a ton but I could see if you're going to start if you want that role shift for OG, I, I would love that this year. You, you've sold me on it. I'm glad to. I'm glad to uh, welcome you to to the Church of OG Optimism. Okay, I think I was there already. I, you know yeah, what? We, you you ascended. Yeah, right. I feel like uh, don't tell anybody, but uh, I feel like the. I speak the OG stuff during the season. I like every, every season, if someone writes a more expansive, like detail of OG's game, I'm disappointed. I feel like that's my job to communicate. So you've given me something to think about. I'm glad to be of any service I can be. <laughs> okay. Feels like a podcast. How do you feel? I feel great. Um, you know, a busy day, covered a lot of ground. Uh, not dissimilar to an OG closeout. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, talk shoes, talk rookies, talked uh, talked some uh, roster building theory. Talked about a way to talk about the de- contracts without being dehumanizing. A lot of ground. Now, I feel like I'm 
like 80% of the way of getting like a, a signed, sealed, and delivered Canadian passport at this point. Um, yeah. I mean, hey, it's yours when you want it, dude. You just have to show up at, at customs. That's, uh, you've, uh, you've got uh, a bunch of people have signed off on it. But okay. Hey, the, uh, just want to thank you a bunch, but the four is yours to plug away on anything you want. Yeah. Um, if you would like to see a, uh, a truncated breakdown on, on Scotty Barnes's game, um, did a marathon stream right before the draft um, where I invited a whole bunch of people in the, the, the basketball community. I don't even want to say draft because I, I'd like to talking to coaches and trainers and, and everybody and did a, a let's watch film on Scotty with, with uh, the wonderful scout, Michael Eisenberg, uh, who's, you know, I believe Canadian. So again, another, another person vouching for me in that, uh, in that customs process. Um, this is about, you know, 25 minutes to talk about, you know, strengths, weaknesses, just the exuberance. Um, there is a link to that in the, uh, in, in, uh, in my Twitter, uh, I have a, a thread where it talks about every prospect that I talked about. I also talked about uh, in that in that mega stream, which uh, took many years off my life. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, they talked about David David Johnson and his pathways to development with Henry Ward, which is also really fun. Um, I'm sure that'll get plugged uh, when you guys talk or else. The um, Banton Blake episode never came to fruition. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, if you'd like to read my writing, uh, it's on Patreon. The work is always free, but if you can donate a couple bucks, it'd be much appreciated. Uh, paper stats, video packages, um, and ed- video editing packages now. Um, all of my videos are on YouTube. Um, Let's Watch Film Series, um, which is a series where I talk about uh, a, a single game from a prospect, talk about micro skills, talk about things they can improve on, um, uh, have like 18 one, I think that I did for this draft cycle, not counting the marathon streams, um, uh, ranging from like Kate Cunningham all the way down to like Kessler Edwards at 45. Um, I think they're really good, really fun, and a way for onboarding a lot of these ideas that we talked about. I'm trying to make the, I'm trying to make basketball as accessible as possible. So you know, it's about talking people through flex screens and and also like if you're a hardcore draft head, maybe you know we we're talking about it at, at different levels at, at the same time. So I think it's it's something for everybody and trying to make this stuff not scary so that everyone feels uh, welcome in this uh, accepting community. Because mm-hmm. this stuff is intimidating. Like right off the jump, you start hearing a bunch of terms that don't seem like they fit into you know a basketball into the gym. Uh, they're actually very understandable and they fit very well, but. Uh, all that stuff will be linked. PD's YouTube will be linked. His Twitch will be linked. Uh, the specific episodes will be linked, as will his Patreon. And PD, thank you so much for coming on. And listener, uh, once again, cannot co-sign PD's stuff enough. I think that, you know, I wouldn't say derivative, but I think he helps inform the conversation on a lot of things. He is respected as somebody who does so. And I am happy anytime I can have him on this podcast because the insights and knowledge just come flowing out. And anybody who likes blazers and ones, they can come on the pod. That's 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 how I feel. That's really I, I really I, there was an open call for for shoe appreciation, and I was like, I know I know a little bit about basketball, and that was so he's like, yeah, I guess we'll touch on that. So right, that was that was the origin of, of me coming on. Um, yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm sure that we will talk. Uh, um, I would love to have you on. Let's watch film from the summer league to talk about a Scotty Barnes game or a David Johnson game. Um, Hell yeah, brother. Um, That's a deal. Um, yeah, because, uh, you know, well, things are quiet now. Get to Vegas and I start clipping games. Be in, the, be in the gym while clipping, which is my favorite thing to do. 
Um, yeah, just thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, my, uh, my second, I, I feel like Knicks fans adopted me initially. Now they push me out because they got successful. <laughs> and they were, like they don't need me anymore because they're in the playoffs or whatever. Um, so like, as long as y'all remain bad, I'm here for you, you know, <laughs> <laughs> from each poverty franchise to the next, that's, uh, you're like, a there's, what is it? The littlest hobo. It's Canadian, a Canadian television program. It was a little dog that, well, not a little dog, it's a big dog that went from town to town helping solve uh, things that were going wrong in the township. And it was on the Canadian Broadcasting Channel. This is some sort of like Scooby-Doo-esque program that, that y'all didn't was, know Scooby-Doo? It was live action, though. It was live action. It was a real I'm dog. Sorry? It was live action. A real dog. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need this uh, <laughs> to look at this later. Uh, oh, I, don't, yeah. I, don't, I don't believe you, but hey. I mean, I'm I'm not above doing like bits and not relenting, but this is real. When you look it up, you'll probably be very very pleased. But okay, let's uh, we'll we'll discuss. Let's watch film and Littlest Hobo off the pod. But PD, thank you so much for coming on, man. Of course, thank you. Okay, and listener, thank you for tuning in. This was a long one, uh, maybe the longest one I've done on the podcast possibly actually i think it is so uh, pd and i are setting records but thank you for tuning in whether you got into it in the morning or at night have a blessed day and goodbye